Torn by four decades of war and desperate poverty, Afghanistan is believed to be sitting on one of the richest troves of minerals in the world. The value of these resources has been roughly estimated to be between one to three trillion dollars. Afghanistan has vast reserves of gold, platinum, silver, copper, iron, chromite, lithium, uranium, and aluminium. The country's high-quality emeralds, rubies, sapphires, turquoise, and lapis lazuli have long charmed the gemstone market. The United States Geological Survey, through its extensive scientific research of minerals, concluded that Afghanistan may hold 60 million metric tons of copper, 2.2 billion tons of iron ore, 1.4 million tons of rare earth elements, or REEs, such as lanthanum, cerium, neodymium and veins of aluminium, gold, silver, zinc, mercury, and lithium. According to Pentagon officials, their initial analysis at one location in Ghazni province showed the potential for lithium deposits as large as those of Bolivia, which has the world's largest known lithium reserves. The USGS estimates the Kanishin deposits in Helmand province will yield 1.1 to 1.4 million metric tons of rare earth elements. Some reports estimate Afghanistan REE resources are among the largest on earth. Jesus You're listening Christ. to another episode of Modern Guilt. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Um, thank you for hidden play on your uh, podcasting platform of choice. If you're subscribed, that's good. If you're not, subscribe. How you all going? Good. Me and Damon are good. Recovering. I've Recovering. Been, uh, effectively talking to Hayden for an hour already lamenting my poor decision making also wearing wearing a dressing gown and just spilled <laughs> coffee on his laptop so <laughs> so tuesday morning's going well for damon oh it's tuesday it's not even monday fucking hell okay whatever yeah okay we'll get through it we will you're here so that blurb uh mm -hmm. that little paragraph yes yeah would you like some information, some context? Yeah, fire it off. All right. Go off, kid. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll do. So for me, one of the uh, news pieces of interest uh, to be unveiled over the last week was um, the Biden administration's announcement that by the 11th of September, um, all U.S. troops will be withdrawn from Afghanistan. Mm. So that blurb or that uh, that extract that I read um, was some of the opening paragraphs from a 2015 article from The Nation titled Natural Resources Were Supposed to Make Afghanistan Rich. Here's What's Happening to Them by Antony Lovenstein, who is an independent um, Israeli journalist. So... This article about Afghanistan's natural resources and the administration's decision to finally draw down the conflict, or at least U.S. involvement in the conflict in Afghanistan, uh, appear on the surface to be only loosely related. But um, I went on a really long Afghanistan rabbit hole, and I've actually studied Afghanistan before in the past, um, as a part of my degree so it's already it's an area of interest of mine as i'm sure like a lot of people can imagine trying to wrap your head around like the the modern history of or the the dynamics of the conflict in afghanistan is nearly impossible um i think even for people in afghanistan it's <laughs> it's mind-bogglingly complex there are so many moving parts and and parties and groups of people and shifting loyalties um, but I found an interesting little thread, um, which I started to pull out that I'm going to try and share a little bit. First though, I think it's interesting to mention, um, just something about the, the media coverage of the Biden withdrawal, mm -hmm. as you and I have talked about here before, uh, last year, uh, Trump announced that US forces would be withdrawing from Afghanistan by May. Um, they actually signed a ceasefire with the Taliban and promised that I think 70% of US forces would be withdrawn within something like 185 days of, of the agreement. Um, less than a month later, half of US forces were pulled out. And at the time, people 
weren't so quick to sort of congratulate Trump on um, on that move, which you know mm. isn't isn't something new. Um, he, despite all of his flaws, um, never really received his his dues for some of the good things that he did. But it's really interesting. I read an article in the Washington Post um, talking about how uh, Biden's announcement of the withdrawal signals a return to normalcy for the presidency and like uh, processes in Washington. And it's pretty hilarious. Like it reads almost as a parody article because they were like, they were celebrating the fact that there were like, I think like 12 um, committee meetings leading up to the decision and how so many people were consulted and how like all of the the aides and intelligence analysts um, and bureaucrats from 35 different government departments were all involved in the process and it was just really nice to see everyone back talking to one another and it was like said something along the lines of you know like this is a welcome departure from the um the erratic behavior of trump who would just make decisions and do things yeah so the end is the same but the means to get there i guess is what they're celebrating well who cries for them you know who cries for the Department of Defense officials that didn't get to see that? <laughs> yeah, who cries for the Think deep state? Yeah. yeah, who cries they, for the they, deep state? <laughs> they don't have enough uh, sympathy. <laughs> they were left um, out of that meeting, you sons of bitches. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They didn't have a chance to to push their agendas at all. Yeah, Trump just went ahead sense. and made a decision that was going to save hundreds of lives. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> anyway, that that's an aside, really. I just kind of wanted to highlight it because it's sort of funny. Um, yeah. But I started reading more about the current peace process in Afghanistan, um, which is tied quite closely to like, development efforts. The United States has spent $100 billion in Afghanistan over the past 20 years um, to try and support economic and, quote, cultural development gender studies as if an ancient civilization <laughs> needs cultural development yeah. um, they've also spent over one trillion dollars on their military operations um the u.s presence in afghanistan has resulted and nato presence i should say it's their allies as well new zealand and australia included we're mm. not absolved of guilt here um have resulted in hundreds of thousands of deaths um yeah most of whom have been uh afghan people um maybe i'm meant to be saying afghanis i apologize to any afghan listeners afghani listeners if i'm not <laughs> using that term correctly careful you don't want to get canceled. i will settle on afghani for the re- remainder yeah. of the pod All i'm right. doing my best here people i'm open to correction <laughs> um so when I was starting to read into the the development efforts in Afghanistan, the next sort of uh, stepping stone that I landed on as I was uh, skipping across the conflict pond yeah. <laughs> was um, Afghanistan's opium industry, which again, it's pretty notorious for. I'd say most of our listeners will be aware that uh, 90% of the world's, uh, quote, illicit opium comes out of Afghanistan um, with another large portion of it coming from Mexico. Um, While Mexico provides the United States with its heroin, Afghanistan essentially provides Eurasia and the Asia-Pacific region with its heroin. Now, farmers in Afghanistan have harvested opium for literally thousands of years. Um, When the Taliban briefly seized power in 1995, and controlled Afghanistan until they were deposed by the US-led invasion in 2002. Um, They implemented a a ban on the uh, production of opium by calling it un-Islamic and eradicated Mm. 99% of opium production. Um, And when the coalition forces invaded, in the regional areas where opium production is most prevalent, um, warlords quickly seized power. uh, And because... Uh, the conflict destroyed most of the economic opportunities for people um, in these regions. They started to fall back on what they knew to traditionally do, which was to cultivate opium. Um, So over the first five years of the conflict, I think opium production um, multiplied like 20-fold or something. Um, 
by 2010 it was at record highs um, and it has since it's essentially increased exponentially and this is linked to minerals so don't worry yet we're just gonna get there um, so throughout the the course of the conflict the coalition forces like hilariously tried and failed monumentally to like curb or eradicate opium production and Afghani people were like incredibly resilient and awesome in their like insistence to keep producing yeah. <laughs> which I fucking love so yeah, um, good on them. yeah so <laughs> while yeah. um the the US forces under the Bush administration were primarily focused on trying to capture bin Laden which we'll all remember they failed to do for 17 years and then found him in Pakistan, not, mm. a, not Afghanistan. <laughs> um, they were preoccupied fighting uh, Taliban forces and Al-Qaeda. Um, and they handed off responsibilities to tackle the opium problem to the British, who were like happy to have some sort of like pivotal role. So their first attempt at eradicating opium was by um, paying the farmers, I think it was 700 US dollars per acre to destroy their crops. So there was like a, a sort of date, right? Where everyone in Afghanistan knew that, yeah, like this is when the British are going to come and pay us all to destroy our crops. So like absolute bosses, all of these farmers just rapidly increased production, cultivated more total land in preparation to just cash in. <laughs> so... They started planting massive amounts of crops, managed to fit in one harvest as well, so increased production, and then cashed in on the back end when the British came and paid them to cut it all down. So all these opium farmers just ended up making bank on their attempt to eradicate production. That's um, fucking sick. Yeah, it's mad, eh? I reckon yeah. they're fucking legends, like more power to them. <laughs> <laughs> as, as the British started failing miserably to um to tackle the opium problem um the coalition realized that they were going to have to distribute responsibility more evenly among them and also try and enlist um afghani people to help them tackle it so they started to to train up like the afghani police and army to go on these patrols and they poured i think something like 30 billion dollars into like training and giving these guys equipment and stuff and then once they had rolled them out like u.s officers and like intelligence people reported like going on patrols through these opium growing regions and just stumbling across afghani cops just like whacking the opium plants with sticks to try and like eradicate the fields Whoa, the <laughs> um, just like completely incompetent um <laughs> At one, at one period, um, they decided to try and encourage more crop production or sorry, more variant crop production by um, getting these farm, paying these farmers to dig canals and irrigation trenches so that they could start to grow fruits and vegetable and wheat. Uh, something to note about opium, as you may already know, is that it um, thrives in relatively warm, dry conditions, um, doesn't need doesn't need a whole lot of water um yeah so these oh, there's one of the reasons that their their crops yeah their <laughs> crop had thrived um yeah. without the need of much water and was so suited to conditions in afghanistan i've heard that yeah. <laughs> um yeah yeah um it's funny how word gets around um they then resorted to uh conducting airstrikes on what they like wrongfully identified as like opium processing facilities. So like in a complete lack of understanding and kind of mischaracterization of the way that Afghani farmers do everything, Western intelligence um, organizations started to identify these targets that they thought were like uh, compounds where they were like distributing or processing opium and in some cases turning it into heroin like assuming that they can't they kind of sort of impose like a western mindset onto the opium farmer if that makes sense so they, they were like well 
they better they must have a place where they put it all and they must be really organized and do all this stuff and they've got facilities and they're sophisticated and shit mm. um so again they carried out this insanely expensive sophisticated um air bombing campaign where they would literally have like f-35 like some of the most advanced um fighter jets in the world probably the most fly over these opium fields and just like fire missiles at mud huts yeah where they were like this is where it's all going down this is where fucking the taliban and al-qaeda are getting their money from and basically after a sustained campaign realized that like nothing had happened because they had just been bombing mud huts um <laughs> and that they hadn't fucking changed anything um, and then the the final straw where um the president of afghanistan at the time um Hamid Karzai, I'm pretty sure that was his name. He finally opposed this and was like, hey man, enough. You've got to just let our boys keep growing opium now. Yeah. Was when they decided to start um, start aerial spraying. So like Agent Orange type shit. Um, they're, they're just like, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll spray the fields from the air, risk causing cancer using some of these chemicals. Like I can't recall the names of the chemicals, but they had, uh, had a record of causing cancer in fact, some of them were used in uh, the Vietnam War. Yeah, no, that's same just what I was thinking off the top of my head, and that caused yeah. like horrendous um, birth defects across there. Cause, and uh, also caused cancer in returning U.S. troops. Yeah. Um, so yeah. obviously uh, a horrific um, <sighs> idea. Yeah. And right. eventually the Afghani government's just like, nah, dog, step off. This is crazy. <laughs> you can't. Um, and so when I was thinking about why has this conflict been going on for 20 years right i was thinking about like okay well there's the there's the surface level reason it's like we need to um tackle terrorism and impose security on the country that's what we're here for yeah. but obviously that's never the case that's the mandate um, that all of us have been given yeah right? exactly yeah. so that that's the mandate but there's obviously has to be an underlying reason and i thought okay so if my my next sort of like step in my logic was like well 90 percent of uh, the world's opium is grown in Afghanistan. Does the West want to get control of this opium production? And I obviously proved myself wrong in my thinking because they had tried so hard to eradicate opium production. Um, then I was like, okay, well, like, what other resources are present in Afghanistan? It's not known, known for its oil, unlike Iraq. Um, the articles that I was reading went to pains to describe the difficulty that farmers have in Afghanistan to grow other crops, which is a part of the reason that they grow opium so much. Mm. Um, so like, it's not like a fertile country. It's not a, not a bread basket. Um, so then I started searching, okay, like Afghanistan's natural resources. Turns out that the Soviets way back in 1985, in fact, I think they even invaded in 1975, but concluded later in the war that Afghanistan was like, hugely mineral rich um and a lot of these geological studies and surveys were lost in the conflict um and then but i'm, I'm sure the us and their allies were still aware but in 2005 uh the pentagon and the Def department of defense started to explicitly begin to talk about the mineral wealth in afghanistan and how um if they helped uh the afghani government uh, develop their capacity to extract these mineral resources, then that would be really good for the Afghan people and uh, women's rights and girls could go to school. It's good for women. Um, yeah, yeah, great for women, which is always the play if you want to extract some resources. It's good for Latinx yeah, as well. Yeah. Uh, what about the the vast population of trans people in Afghanistan? We need help them. Fuck yeah, it's great for them. Um, Oh yeah. So yeah. I, I, I extracted some quotes from uh, another article um, in the Diplomat by Ahmad Shah Katawazai. I'm sure I accidentally mispronounced his name. Sorry, Ahmad. Uh, this one was written in February 2020. So since 2009, the U.S. Agency for International Development, 
USAID, and the Defense Department's, get this, Task Force for Business and Stability Operations. <laughs> the Defense Department has a Task Force for Business and Stability Operations. Jesus have provided $488 million towards the nation's extractive industries, supporting a variety of corporations like the accounting firm PricewaterhouseCoopers and the US-based contractors Expertec Solutions and Hickory Ground Solutions. This money did nothing to build a viable and well-regulated mining industry in Afghanistan. Instead, the Ministry of Mines and Petroleum lacked, quote, the technical capacity to research, award, and manage new contracts without external support. Oh. While the U.S. government, including USAID and the Defense Department, had failed in its mission to help create self-sustaining Afghan extractive industries, which still seems a very distant goal. So, starts to scratch the surface on these US development operations and this, all of this aid that they were pouring into Afghanistan very much was centered around the idea of developing a domestic uh, mining and mineral resource extraction industry in Afghanistan that would be inherently dependent on US expertise and uh, assistance, which is a classic uh, play in the development playbook where you essentially force these developing countries to deregulate their industries and open themselves up to um to you know these multinationals who have western expertise and can come in and create jobs and help you develop mm. um and it's <laughs> this one has been pretty well fucking hidden that that now, is a f okay go on yep yep so it turns out that uh in the midst of these attempts they had a little bit of a uh, of a foil in their midst in China. Here we go. Surprise, surprise. So to talk about China's role here, I need to talk about a province called Logar or Logar. Um, and I'm, I'm reading from the nation again here. Um, Logar province hasn't seen peace for decades. Situated close to Kabul, the country's capital, the area was a main supply route for the American-backed Mujahideen as they poured in from Pakistan in the late 1970s and early 80s during the Soviet occupation. Um, by, the, not, by 1995, the Taliban controlled Logar, and today all sides of the modern Afghan conflict intersect there. Insurgents rule large swathes of the area, and suicide bombings kill civilians and Afghan security forces. The locals are caught between the Taliban, a small but growing Islamic state presence, and Afghan troops. Logar is also home to one of the world's largest untapped copper deposits at Mez Ainak. The Chinese company, China Metallurgical Group Corporation, controls the $3 billion mine there, having obtained the rights to the area in 2007, but operations haven't commenced because of security concerns and the discovery by archaeologists of ancient relics dating back to the Bronze Age. Um, if I scroll down, um, the metallurgical um, company purchased the rights to the copper for, th for 30 years, and the Afghan government has few, if any, other companies willing to take over the contract in such a volatile region. Global copper prices have dropped 40% since 2011. There's no reliable transportation route for taking the metal out of the landlocked country, etc., etc. Mm. So it looks like China managed to beat the United States and their allies to the punch, bought up the, the rights to mine these minerals, and then just peaced out. Um, yeah. So you can see, I think, that these development efforts ground to a halt because they just vastly misunderstood, um, I think, Afghani culture, the way people operate there and the priorities in their country, which is pretty well illustrated in their attempts at eradicating opium, just shows the way that they fumble these things. And while there's no direct sort of evidence that I came across, at least on the surface, about why these development efforts failed, you can imagine they probably um, lie in like the same areas. And I think the decision to withdraw now may be largely um, based on the fact that they tried and miserably failed to get all of to get access to all of these minerals. And meanwhile, with China, with their Belt and Road Initiative, um, I think preemptively brought up the rights to mine these minerals and are now in the process of connecting Afghanistan with the rest of Asia with like their infrastructure projects. It's important to note that even though the US Army is scheduled to finish withdrawing by September 11, which also, weird date, dude. 
What are you yeah, doing? I, like, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah uh, fucking whatever. psychopaths. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe we should change it to the uh, Capital Riot State because I heard that's the new September 11th. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It'd be more fitting. It would be. Yeah. There's expected to be a huge um, private, uh, what do you call it? Uh, private military presence in Afghanistan being paid for by the US government. Which is something um, I heard that they're withdrawing publicly and uh, investing privately, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So um, it's going to be interesting to see how this unfolds from here. But yeah, I thought that was <sighs> fucking interesting. Can you hear, I, I hear Ted Kwasinski just yelling from the Screaming jail, from the woods. Screaming <laughs> from the woods. Tear it all down. <laughs> Uh, you know, industrial society and its consequences have absolutely been a fucking disaster for the human race. And that mm -hmm. one single line should be echoed every fucking time something like that happens. Um, interesting to know, China's sort of non not obviously not non-interventionist, but more like indifferent approach to the entire thing rather than the like moralizing the West to assume yeah, you know, yeah. what to fucking you know tell these people what to do. It just goes to Absolutely. show the the arrogance of them. Hey, like Absolutely. just like you know, oh they didn't have the technical looks, they didn't have the, the Western mind to yeah, properly yeah. vet, you know, uh, mining contracts, which is just Oh God, it's all so, it's, if it's not bad enough that your family's getting murdered and butchered by like drone strikes and, um, you know, your income and, uh, quality of life is getting taken away from you by these moralizing dickheads. It's the fact that they're moralizing you while they're fucking doing it as well. It's just, I, <laughs> yeah, I can't yeah. imagine anything, dude, I would a hundred percent. I get the whole fucking terrorism. Oh, 100%. It's terrorism. It's not fucking terrorism. It's just like, I it's get just it. I, it's common sense it's like mm -hmm. if someone comes in destroys your livelihood which is bad enough like that's fucking horrendous you know uh but also bombs the absolute shit out of your fucking you know friends and family mm -hmm. and then has the audacity to try and dick with your government and fucking completely rape your resources yeah fuck your opium folks opium you know, all this over some smack like you know hey, you jesus fuck. fucking christ sort your drug problem um, out on your own soil like hilariously <laughs> the whole problem could basically just be subverted if they just decriminalize drugs yeah well it's just just a junk like <laughs> yeah i'm not yeah. a heroin advocate i'm not like carl hart i'm not like you know opiates are all good like you know they're they're all right i i thought I, yeah whatever whatever uh, yeah hey yeah i mean they're just not something that i'd fucking suggest doing but you know they're not something that i'd bomb a country because i think they're that bad over all right sorry yeah. i think we really lost touch with each other because there were a few connection things then yeah uh anyway point being um that i just god it's, it just makes you so mad eh? You know, like just mm. so fucking mad um, yeah. that these sons of bitches think that this sort of thing is acceptable. In, in the, mm. And and yeah, props to China, I guess, coming out of the back of that. Like they've probably done the same thing in Africa, you know, and there's all those think pieces that come out of the Washington Post. Uh, I think more from guys like Thomas Friedman, if I'm getting his name right, um, may not be Thomas Friedman or, or uh, you know, I can't remember his name entirely but yeah it's like one of the like the proponents of um i don't really like using the term but like neoliberal uh you know like one of the guys that is effectively really for opening up other countries and you know uh, yeah. development and then more famously that we've talked about on the pod is guys like jeffrey Sachs that are really mm -hmm. for that and jeffrey Sachs is like we did a whole episode on him but you know also check him out uh if you really need to know about him there's just two episodes of econ talk where um they have a takedown journal and then they have Jeffrey Sachs's response, and I'll tell you everything you need to know about him. But sons of bitches like that just will fuck a country up so bad. And, mm -hmm. you know, you, you got to admire the fact that China's approach to development has just been more neutral. They're just there to make a buck. <laughs> like, exactly. Like, sure, yeah. they're in it for the cash, but at least that's fucking honest. Oh, yeah, you can't, you can't hate on that, you know. 
Because um, I mean, it's a more, it's, they're actually, I feel like that's true development at the end of the day. Um, rather than yeah, just, yeah. like moralizing rather than imperialism of... yeah um yeah, I, i'll also yeah, add yeah. that um as much as we uh bag on the washington post rightfully so um i've got to give it credit where credit's due because one of the pieces that i drew on um for this little segment um was a 2019 piece called overwhelmed by opium by a guy called craig whitlock um yeah which uh, fortunately demonstrates that these uh, piece of shit liberal media institutions can sometimes <laughs> still do good work. Um, yeah. I would recommend our listeners to follow the link in the episode description to this one in particular because it's accompanied by some really beautiful photos um, taken in Afghanistan um, that mm. do, a, do a good job of highlighting the sort of, I think, the beauty of Afghanistan's landscape as well as maybe like some of the traditional ways of life that people live there but yeah as well highlights some of the terror experienced by these people like there's there's a photograph of like you can see these um opium farmers who have been um rounded up off their farms and uh are being like watched over by u.s troops inside one of their homes or like sitting on the ground while this marine with his fucking sunnies and assault rifle just stands over them and you can completely see why these guys would be quite happy to pay their taxes to the taliban um and to sympathize with these local warlords in and guerrilla fighters mm. um so anyway yeah. that's uh that's afghanistan from the perspective of uh hayden austin for today so hey, I liked there you it. go. Well, um, on the subject of liberal elites uh, and deep state elites and um, the bias that were being shown, I came across something last night while I was trying to review my general news pipeline that I do every other day, make sure that the world's not imploding um, mm -hmm. and everything. And I came across an article um, that was pretty eye-opening i thought um but perhaps a little paragraph uh to so <laughs> to, to, to open it up so sort of like a preamble to all this is that we're hearing about stronger than faster basically a, the recovery is going well is the dominant mm -hmm. narrative right and we're hearing about labor claims are starting to pick up and we're hearing that the economy is starting to come back there's a lot of talk about the roaring 20s it's a narrative that i see a lot jamie diamond famously came out recently um the ceo of jp morgan and was talking about how we could have fantastic growth all the way to 2023 um and if you didn't catch that headline you might have catched the other one that said jamie Dimon used latinx in his annual shareholder letter what a boon for uh for fucking <laughs> yeah. and latinx there you go what a win yeah. everyone yeah so that Fight was the real hands. takeaway but I, uh, I took the other takeaway, which was that he's very optimistic about the way things are going. So, um, <laughs> part of this labor force that everybody is championing is perhaps not as accurately, uh, you know, um, described by the statistics, which is always something that's fascinating the deeper you go into it. So check this. Soon, she said, money began flowing into her account. Please take all of my money for your trip. I don't deserve it, wrote Better Boy 10 who gave $500, according to screenshots she provided to the New York Times. Another name, subbed Mike 00 sent $250. A user who goes by Peter Zapp sent $400, along with the message, I'd do anything to be owned by you. Welcome to the lucrative world of financial domination, a form of BDSM that has flourished during the pandemic when many sex workers and their customers have migrated online because of social distancing precautions. Concept is simple. Even if the allure is not immediately self-evident, Finn subs, short for financial submissives, send monetary tributes to a financial dominatrix. Could be any gender, uh, which is weirdly important, uh, in exchange for being <laughs> humiliated and degraded. So this is, it's great for Latinx and, uh, trans people and everything yeah uh so it's controlling someone through their wallet says mistress marley the times agreed to identify her only by her professional name to prevent stalkers from finding her i love waking up every day realizing that submissive men pay all my bills i don't spend a dime giving away hard-earned money may seem counterintuitive or unpleasant like paying off credit cards and student loans but for fin subs who are also known as pay pigs it is liberating 
and titillating. <laughs> and financial domination is helping Charlie, 29, a sales manager in Ohio, identify as a transgender woman, even as she presents as a man in her vanilla life, she said. King Court, her findom, has full access to one of her bank accounts, she said, as part of her consensual blackmail arrangement. King Court threatens to expose Charlie as a woman in exchange for money. The idea, both said, is to encourage Charlie to live as she wants in public as well as private. Giving up financial control may also help FinSubs be more empathetic. William M., 31, a technology manager for a school system, said that he spends $300 a month on Queen Astro, 31, FinDom from Los Angeles. Every time he sends money, she publicly belittles him on Twitter and then degrades him on Skype. I used to be much more self-centered, Williams said. <laughs> In that sense, financial domination is not so different than some marriages. We don't call it findom, Dr. Court said. We see it as romantic, as one partner telling another, I'm going to take care of you in findom, it becomes erotic. But it's the same dynamic as marriage. <laughs> fucking hell, I hate these man. fucking people so much. <laughs> I, I, I hate them too. <laughs> Fuck, man, that's so incredible. So that was put out by Tyler Cohen. Uh, and Tyler Cohn is fairly well-known economist uh, that likes to talk about um, the like transformation of the labor economy. And so the title is Markets and Everything, Those New Service Sector Jobs Work from a Distance, um, which is most likely not ironic. And most likely, he likes to champion the fact that we're moving to a remote economy and that the new labor force is going to be filled with these you know, jobs that you could never think of before, right? So... Yeah, so a uh, nice, uh, diverse <laughs> workforce, new professions springing up. Well, what you, what, the important thing to take from that is that there's a lot of people who are engaging in these like transient roles or jobs or whatever, uh, and they are very convenient as a mask. So in walks this other thing that I'm reading last night, right? Right, basically, I'm just sitting down trying to fucking figure out what the hell is going to happen to my portfolio the next day. Um, and it was a piece called Collapsing Labor Force Participation, a Secular Trend. Um, and effectively, this guy, Constantine, uh, who is a economist from Dublin or something, was talking about this horrific trend that nobody seems to really be describing, that in droves, people are dropping out of the labor force, you know, and that's mm. been exacerbated by the pandemic. But being pushed way harder than basically any media organization has been talking about because they're talking about the recovery, but they're not talking about the fact that uh, large sections of the economy are just not returning to work at all, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so there's a dominant narrative at the moment within the Wall Street Journal and a couple other major news organizations probably um, that are effectively saying uh, that skill shortages are everywhere and that hiring can't keep up with this uh you know real push for the american economy and everything and yet um this dude constantine which is you know dope name that's fucking awesome uh <laughs> saying that it is an absolute disaster at the moment that labor force participation has just dropped off a fucking cliff um, and he's got some grasp we'll link you to the article uh it's really good so women's participation in the labor force is effectively just stagnated um you know and it hasn't really grown in a long time and when i mean long time if you look at the graph um, i'm talking like since 1999 and has been dropping it was slowly recovering leading up to 2020 and then it fell off a cliff and now it hasn't really done anything since you know mm. men's participation has deeply declined like deeply deeply fallen off a fucking cliff and has not recovered at all men are just not working at all they, they apparently can't be fucked uh you, know, <laughs> you look at the fucking stat it literally just goes you know <laughs> absolutely falls off the fucking cliff so i've been trying to think like well what's the takeaway here um what he effectively argues within um he put out like a whole series on this uh that's really good and we'll link all the different articles that he talks about is that uh pre-pandemic the trend was that men were effectively just not fucking working at all they just were dropping out they're staying at home and they weren't even looking for jobs and then now it's you know worse but what is a signaling is that there has been like a structural issue since 2008 
where a large number of people were basically ousted from the workforce. Um, and there's this drop-off point, I think it's around the uh, 27 week mark that mm -hmm. if you don't get a job within the 27 week mark, you're effectively are like almost an unhirable, you know, it is extremely difficult for you to get back into the workforce and actually participate. And so eventually people just give up. They're just oh, like, fuck. Christ. Um, so the wall street journal was simultaneously reporting one skill shortages. Um, I'll have to like fact check the, the fact check with fucking this fact check. <laughs> We'll get a fact checking team on it. But there, there's a headline put out on Business Insider that McDonald's was paying people to go to job interviews um, because no one was showing up in Florida. They're paying people 50 bucks to go along just to fucking interview because they can't hire people. So we're not talking, it's, it's like across the board, the skill shortages and everything from, you know, like uh, fast food to uh, software to fucking whatever. Um, yeah, so at the 27 week mark, people start getting fucked. Large amounts of people have been fucked for a long time. And now since the pandemic hit, um, you know, last episode, we were talking about grads. Um, this is effectively even worse because this is like significant number of people can't get any jobs. And what it's starting to highlight is just how fucking many jobs were really going to uh, this expat class of people that mm. were fucking soaking all the fucking rolls up right and now they can't do that so now there's like these air quoted school shortages aka we can't bring any fucking uh you know of the the uh, mobile labor class to fucking soak up the rolls and we don't really want to hire anyone for the role and we don't want to deal with anyone that's been out of a job for ages and uh, a lot of the people that have been out of a job for ages are just so fucking beat down by the system that they probably don't even want to, you know, think about it. So the Wall Street Journal is talking about the accelerated retiring happening, uh, you know? The accelerated retiring. Fuck. <laughs> That's such a shitty way to describe that. <laughs> yeah, Fuck. so the pandemic accelerates retirements, threatening economic growth. <laughs> Neither 1.5 over 55 year olds exited the job market as recession virus weighed in on opportunities. That was published uh, recently in March 28th. Um, um, can I, I just want to uh, just drop some uh, lyrics in here, by the way. You, uh, you yeah. made me th think of, sorry to, to interrupt you, but no, go um, yeah. to any of our listeners, please go and listen to the track Brenda by Isaiah Rashad. And I'm just gonna, gonna read a little bit here. And uh, there are a couple words in here that I'm gonna change. You might uh, understand why I would change them as a white person. Um, <laughs> all right piss test living fuck that shit fuck fuck call centers fuck is this really growing up my man tax on your motherfucking nuts my man 1025 what the fuck can a man do with 1025 plus your weed habit plus my weed habit and your weed habit for free giving we live in with a weed daddy two kids mix that boosie with that boom bap um laments on uh that 1025 mcdonald's wage yeah the... yeah exactly right <laughs> yeah so yeah when you, when you to that point that's just not fucking cutting it you know and it's like uh so the real insults start to come out here where they talk about uh faster and greater recovery a lot of the jobs that people are talking about are these um, basically transient labor jobs or this like bullshit entrepreneurship that they're fucking saying because all of a sudden there's all these self-employed people. Where the fuck did they come from, right? Like we're, wait, this is the roaring 20s. We're in the entrepreneurship uh, decade. This fucking entrepreneurship that everybody's talking about is this they're like fucking fin doms. Yeah. <laughs> or it's like transient labor gig fucking crap, you know? Like you're an employee at fucking, uh, you know, DoorDash or Uber it's like, or whatever. Or like calling me an entrepreneur because I'm doing like freelance copywriting. Yeah. Yeah. You know, exactly. I'm not a fucking entrepreneur, man. I'm selling my labor still. Yeah. 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 Oh, just without <laughs> the pennies, you know? Yeah. Exactly. Um, so the statistics are just totally fucking off uh, the like dark reality of what's happening. <laughs> so do you think... Like there are two reasons that I can imagine they would be spinning this false or like uh, 
made up narrative. That's not the word that I was thinking. Dressed up narrative. Hmm. Um, It was like, one is that they somehow want to like keep like prodding the economy forward as though if they trick enough people, then like people won't lose confidence and that, you know, the economy will keep sort of like turning over. Or two, do you think that they just know that if the truth gets out, people won't handle it? Well, I... I don't think it's a relevant voter base. I don't think anybody cares about these people. You know, I think these. This is the whole same thing when we talked about the shadow recession back in twenty eighteen. Mm. Uh, sorry, no, it was twenty sixteen. Wait, yeah, was it twenty eighteen or twenty? I don't know. It was. Go back, listen to that episode. That's yeah, that's, yeah, I know. <laughs> I whenever the shadow recession was was a similar thing where yeah. um, the rising interest rates were effectively decimating the manufacturing base within America. And those people were getting shafted. And uh, the easier narrative is to talk about how fucking good the economy was um, at the time, which was largely benefiting fucking uh, tech workers and shit like that. And I I don't Mm, think these people matter. They're the deplorables, man. You know, they're the uh, they're they're drag. They're not fun. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> These assholes storm the capital. Like nobody wants to fucking deal with them. So I think it's just shoved under the rug because if you look at the stats, then it's sort of like, oh, you know, how great, how fantastic is this um, economy? But uh, if you go two, three, four, um, you know, um, you find this group of workers that are just kind of getting fucked. But it's mm. a small enough number that you probably just sort of like write them off as, uh, you know, the the whole Occupy movement, however they fucking wrote that off. It's a tale that's old, you know? It's not... People will talk about it, but nobody seems to want to do anything about it because it's like the solution is uh, nightmarishly complex, maybe, or it mm-hmm. requires the giving up of power of the elites. But, um, but it's good for transgender people and, and Latinx and... Uh, and and, uh, and fin subs. <laughs> and fin subs, yeah. I, I wonder if, uh, like, it, it strikes me that maybe the purpose of this narrative peddling is to to target these people who are oppressed or have dropped out of the labor market with this information that the economy is actually in great shape and that it's not a broader problem, it's actually you. Mm. So, because I think as soon as you become... You drop out of the labor market and suddenly you become quite isolated, I think. Like, um, I have noticed that in the last sort of year or so where my work life has been much more inconsistent. Like, I still have work and I'm not struggling, but I don't have, I suppose, a conventional work life. Um, You become quite isolated. And I think if you're seeing on the news people are talking about well the economy is rebounding and american job numbers are higher than pre-pandemic or skill shortage (laughs) yeah or whatever like i think you probably look at yourself and you blame yourself or you think what's wrong with me this is horrible and and as long as you're blaming yourself then you're not looking outward at the cause of some of these issues um which might be why they're they constitute a forgotten or ignored voter base like you mentioned because so it's like like why am i going to go and vote in this system that i am letting down (laughs) it's not like the system needs to be rectified it's like i am uh i'm not good enough to meaningfully participate in in this system that's delivering good results for the most people Hmm. um yeah so it's a way to sort of alienate and disempower people perhaps i i think you're i'm trying to find this comment uh, there was a fantastic comment on it um, that I was reading uh, that sort of summed up how the, this may be a bit of a pain in the ass as I like simultaneously you know, try and talk about this. This is, this is a similar effect that we talked about uh, where we talk about the overdiagnosis of like depression and other mental illness, hmm. <laughs> where it's like, you know, you, you push the problem onto the individual as opposed to look at the, the causes yeah well um, exactly and and i i fully believe um that this is basically as you were saying it's like people want to push the it's it's a it's enough it's you know you, you can kind of ignore it you can push it onto other people and you don't have to fucking deal with it and then you can just look at the broad stats and that will support your narrative that you're doing a good job and like i don't really think that 
um, they care much about anything other than, uh, you know, other looking like they're doing a good job. Yeah, other than a chart you can put on CNN. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, then, look yeah. at this graph. Everything is great. American excellence. You know, we're helping transgender people in Afghanistan. <laughs> Do you know how many Latinx people Jamie Dimon's helped? Like, it's just so fucking, uh, so fucking bullshit. I can't find this comment, but basically what, what this guy was saying was that, oh, you know, it's very evident within the economy because one thing that has boomed in recent years, and this is another fantastic, uh, fucking thing I've noticed because I was a recruiter, recruiting agencies have boomed because what they effectively are doing is they're, they're in the business of the buying and selling of uh, primarily of expats. <laughs> oh, no, fucking, right, okay. Well, right, and like that's what they do is they, they're sifting and sorting through the fucking labor pool um, and putting people that don't need a lot of training, don't need a lot of anything. They can just sort of like waltz on in and start doing a job really quickly. And when I was a recruiter, uh, that was my job, was to try and find people that could just waltz into a position and fucking get started immediately. So, mm. you know, there's enough people out there that are probably, uh, in fact, definitely, if recruiters are doing the job right, um, which they certainly are because they get paid very well to do it, um, not getting any opportunities. And then there's the elite uh, with the experience that can soak up all this shit. But of course... That's not very sustainable. It's eroding, right? Because a small number of people are going to be getting all jobs. They're going to be sort of fucking doing quite well. And then there's a lot of people that aren't even getting their foot in the door. And then you have these stupid positions where a junior, um, you know, is required to have, you know, everybody's fucking seen it. Junior role, five years of experience, master's degree, 40K <laughs> a year. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's... Uh, you know, there's a lot of people that just aren't going to have that soon. So we're going to get the fucking bullshit skill shortage narrative where everyone's going to be like, look at how good the economy is. There's a skills shortage, um, which is trash. It's not true. <laughs> there's plenty of people who need jobs. Nobody wants to fucking do the training because of this transient labor, the expats. Hmm. And they're just wow. capitalizing on it as well. So, you know, I'm not like, fuck experts. I'm just kind of like the print, the fucking rules in place and like the push to have um, like easy access to, you know, uh, like primarily New Zealand. It's like people from the UK, like they just get fucking soaked up. They're the money makers mm -hmm. if you're a recruiter, um, you know. Yeah, well, um, if, if you have found yourself left behind by the labor market, and haven't had a job in at least 27 weeks, then you should go to Patreon forward slash Modern Guild and <laughs> subscribe to pay us $5 a month in exchange <laughs> for brutal, man. Um, <laughs> premium content um, yeah. where we discuss uh, stocks of interest to both ourselves and our listeners. And you might figure out somewhere to put some of your spare pocket money to uh, make a dime since you can't work. Oh, well, and very seriously, but the main thing is that if you do find yourself in that position, it's just to realize that it's probably like not your fault, you know, and it's the like evil forces and elites that are systematically fucking mm -hmm. eating every opportunity possible and then blaming it on other people. But, and yeah. as well as that though, while you should not blame yourself, you should also not make the mistake of blaming or uh, of removing yourself of agency, you know? While your situation might not be a direct fault of your own choices, um, that doesn't mean that you can't change your situation through your own actions. So uh, don't get disheartened. Just um, figure out how to start putting one step in front of the other. And it's not easy, but you can do it. Uh, yeah. And then once you have, go to Patreon forward slash Modern Guilt <laughs> and subscribe to our finance stream for $5 a month to support the podcast, uh, send us a message and request some stocks for us to research and discuss uh, and we will put you right. Yeah, I, I don't, um, the one thing that fucks me over, like the true insult of this entire narrative is the idea of the budding, uh, the budding entrepreneurship community comprised of FinDoms and, uh, you know, gig workers <laughs> and, like, and um and shitty patreon podcasters <laughs> well and it makes you wonder like what like uh so constantine 
Um, again, awesome, awesome name. Uh, it's effectively like um, warning of a total, uh, you know, like a structural issue within the entire economy that might fall over on itself. Um, but also you sort of think, well, maybe, uh, you know, yeah, maybe um, we'll end up in this horrendous position where there's this like surf class of uh, fin-doms and, you know, um, <laughs> shitty fucking Patreon <laughs> um, paid uh, people and, you know, gig workers and everybody who's just scrapping over like uh, $50 contracts and whatnot. And then the like um, elites just raping and blaming uh, countries and the underclass to support their, you know, fat fucking gross mar- margins on their um, platform and mining tech. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're heading. <laughs> I think we're heading that way. Yeah. Um, and I think another thing that's concerning about this, um, when you mention structural issues, uh, is that these problems are causing a lot of people to either delay or just choose completely to not have children which mm. I think is like pretty grim. Um, I was recently looking at uh, demographic statistics for Australia. And if I remember correctly, there is a roughly equal portion of the population aged 65 and over as there is aged between 15 to 64. Um, mm. So y- you have a rapidly aging population and people who are in that sort of working or reproductive age bracket are basically choosing not to have children. So like like Japan, we're going to have this aging population that we basically can't support and economic growth will completely stagnate. Mm. And then once we get to that point, I mean, I don't know what happens after that. It's <laughs> it's yeah. interesting. Well, it's it's a another story that people like to throw out there. It's like, oh, the fucking boomers, you know, fuck the boomers. They had it so much easier. And they didn't have it easier, that's true. But uh, again, structural issue. There's a lot of fucking have-nots in that generation, you know? And mm. it's this isn't a story of age or it's not a story of gender. It's not a story of sexual orientation. It's a story of haves and have-nots. The end. That's it. You know, it's that is the only story that's happening here. And uh, that aging population, some of them will be fine, obviously, because there's some fantastic pension funds out there that are doing uh you know a great job of buying up housing stock to generate um great rental returns that can uh you know support these people in their old age if you have enough money in these pension funds um you know doing a great job of buying up trailer parks to to make sure that you can get those fat divvies paid out frequently but uh there's a lot of people that aren't in pension plans or aren't in fucking any of that shit and they're gonna get brutalized you know by high rents and uh predatory trailer parks and Mm. fucking all this other shit so and i mean like not only do those people uh bear the brunts of these outcomes but younger people by virtue of having their tax dollars diverted to care for these unproductive members of society suffer as well and if we have a larger sort of portion of the population not working not paying income tax or not um, for lack of a better word, creating value in the economy, then like we're all sliding backwards. Mm. Um, and like I don't say that to to be harsh. Um, that's not a criticism of older people or people who are not productive because I think productivity is overrated. <laughs> but I, it, that's just the the reality of it when you look at it from a broad perspective. But yeah, um, we're at nearly an hour ten, so we should probably wrap it up. Yeah, right, um, yeah. This has been a really good chat. Thank you, as always. Um, Thank you to our dear listeners for listening. Uh, That's dumb. By virtue of being a listener, you are listening, so I didn't need to say that. Oh, even playing it and not listening. Thanks for that as well. Well, yeah, do that as well, actually. (laughs) I feel like Um, ambient droning. uh, (laughs) Just frustrated white guys. New Zealand accents, and that's what you want to listen to. You don't want to listen to the content. Recorded on shitty, awful devices. Yeah, that's Um, our ASMR for you. That's it. Um, Like I said just a little bit earlier as well subscribe to our patreon if you like the podcast and find it valuable for five dollars a month you get um 
extra content, an extra episode per month, uh, as well as the satisfaction that you are supporting us. Mm. So <laughs> if you want to follow us on social media, uh, on Instagram, we are Modern Guilt Pod. On Twitter, we are guilt underscore modern. And that will be us for today. All right. Peace out. See you later, guys. Cool.